0: 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, and then we'll read a passage from 2 Peter. Paul says in the last recorded epistle that we have of Paul to his protege, Timothy, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure, literally loosing, is at hand. And then the most familiar verses in the whole book whole letter. I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. You might think, Pastor these are words usually read at a funeral. This is not a funeral. I know we've had some recently. But no, I'm not being morbid today. I think perhaps the best time to quote these verses is on this occasion, the last Sunday of a year. As we face a new year, if the Lord tarries is coming, we see the prospects that Paul had in view. But it wasn't just the Apostle Paul. It was also Peter so in 2 Peter chapter 1, would you keep your finger there? 2 Timothy 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, after giving these virtues and a whole list that we should have, that we should add to our faith, and I've preached through those several years ago, but after giving that, uh, all that series of truths, he says this in conclusion in verse 10 of chapter 1 Wherefore, the rather, brethren, Give diligence. So we need to give attention to what we're about to read. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two perspectives, very similar. One from Paul, one from Peter. It's not morbid to live every day as if it were our last. In fact, that's the wisest way to live. I appreciate what a fellow said one time. I don't know who it was, but he said, it's the way I want to finish my life that keeps me on course. That's true. Now, what did Peter and Paul have in common? That caused me to read their words toward the last year. They had it revealed to them by God, that they would die for their testimony for Jesus Christ. We read that in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. We read it in 2 Peter 1, verse 14. They mentioned that. They had it revealed to them that they were going to die. I don't know how you work out your eschatology with that. That's a little bit challenging. Yet neither of them was daunted by this sobering prospect. They wanted to finish strong and receive the well done of the Master and eternal rewards and crowns that awaited them in heaven. Others have done that, and so can we. And I hope you'll be filled with hope this morning as I preach this message. That's my intent. It's not how we start, but how we finish that counts. And this is not saying that we're saved by works, God forbid. Certainly, that is not what I'm saying. Paul was concerned for Timothy, his young son in the faith, as well as he was concerned for himself that both of them would finish strong. So he warned Timothy about Demas in chapter, or in verse 10, he said, uh, of of chapter 4, he said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present age, this present world. It's hard for us to appreciate. How Paul felt when he said that. Demas had been a fellow helper to the truth. Demas had been a wonderful friend, but now he had shown his true colors. He'd gone back to the world. If you want to put a dagger in the heart of this preacher, just do that. I, and you do it, it's even worse what you do to Jesus. But just masquerade for a while and conform to all the expectations of people in the church and then show your true colors and go back to the world. That's what Demas did. And Paul appeals to Timothy not to do that. And Peter earnestly solicited for his readers that after his death they would have the things that he had taught them in remembrance. Why? The reason was given, I hope you didn't miss this, so that they too would have an abundant entrance into heaven. And when we think of an abundant entrance, who do we think of? I think, first of all, of Stephen, the early martyr. I mean, Jesus, he saw heaven open as as he was dying. He saw Jesus standing to receive him home, standing on the right hand of God, to welcome his martyred child home. Oh, nobody looks forward to a martyr's death, but what a way to go when Jesus awaits you like that. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you and I can have that same abundant entrance. We can finish strong. We can hear the master's well done. But many who call themselves Christians and may well be saved are not going to hear that. Did you know it's possible to run well for a time and then forfeit the rewards that you once earned? Did you know it's possible to make shipwreck of your life after doing great exploits for God? I'm going to do an aside here, and this is not on the the notes, so all you're seeing is the title page anyway. So. This won't cost you anything extra, okay? Don't have to put anything more in the offering box for this at all. But I want to give you some three striking examples of true believers in the Word of God who did not finish strong. And remember what the Bible says, why we have this inspired record, especially in the Old Testament. Their lives were written. Paul said to the Corinthians, For our admonition, for our instruction, for our learning, as examples to us upon whom the ends of the age have come. Hey, folks, the ends of the age are here. And so we really need to sit up and pay attention to this. The people that have not finished strong, though they are called believers in the Word of God, this will shock you. It should. The first one I think of, even in order of time, was the man Lot, the, the, the nephew of Abraham. If you're in 2 Peter, you don't have to turn far to read about Lot. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, "...and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live godly." Notice verse 7, and delivered, what are the next two words? Just lot. Vexed or distressed, that word means. Distressed with the filthy conversation, the, 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 the depraved behavior of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, when you read that, you would think, Well, Lot must have really been such a godly man. He finished strong. I wish I could tell you that he did, but he didn't. If you know the story of Lot, you know that he was a weak believer. He was a believer. He was a just man. He was distressed by the filthy conversation and manner of life of the wicked. But he was weak. Why? How? Through incessant compromise with the world. It came about because of selfish decisions. Oh, it all seemed innocent enough to begin with, and that's the way sin comes on. That's the way Satan comes on to us. Lot set his sights on the well-watered plains of Jordan. That's where he he had a bunch of flocks, and he had too many. He couldn't stay with his uncle Abraham, his magnanimous uncle, who had raised him from a child. and, 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 And Abraham was kind and deferring, and he refused to take what he could have taken. And so Lot took the well watered plains of Jordan. Lot pitched his tent toward the wicked city of Sodom. And before long, we see that he's inside the city of Sodom with his family. And before long, we see him sitting in the gate of the city of Sodom. That means that he was an alderman, he was a councilman, he was seeking to curry prestige for his, himself and his family. Well, how did that work out for him? Not too good. When a heathen band of kings launched a raid on Sodom and Gomorrah and kidnapped kidnapped the inhabitants of these cities of the plain, was Lot powerful enough because of his prestige in the city? Was he able to negotiate with those guys, those kings? Oh, no. He was absolutely helpless. He could not resist. He could not intervene. Please listen carefully. It took Abraham, the separated man, living in tents, denying himself what he could have had, to go after them with 318 men in his household train and recover everything. Please remember this. You can make fun of the separated Christian with his or her standards, but when it comes down to, to it, they'll have the power to help you. We know the rest of the story, or at least I hope you do. God destroyed the cities of the plain. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Nobody could say it was done naturally, it was God who did it. But God didn't destroy those cities until He had spared Lot and his two unmarried daughters, his wife turned into a pillar of salt, because she turned around to look. Well, do those two daughters and Lot live happily ever after? I'll be discreet. You know they didn't. The last we see, see of Lot and hear of him, he's living in a cave and consenting to the wicked sin of incest with his two unmarried daughters so that he will have a posterity. Even though, remember, Lot had seen what God had done for his uncle Abraham and his aunt Sarah in their old age, miraculously giving them posterity. And so we see Lot at the last defeated and defiled. Is Lot going to be in heaven? Oh, yes. Is he going to have any rewards? Not many, if any. Saved by the skin of his teeth. Think of another man. Didn't finish strong. Great man his name was Solomon. The Bible says Solomon was beloved of his God. He started out good. The heir apparent to King David, the beloved son of David, Bathsheba, he could have had anything he wanted. He he could have had riches and long life. He could have asked for the lives of his enemies and God would have given it to him. But instead, very wisely, he asked for wisdom. And so the whole world came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the Bible says, and not just the queen of Sheba, we remember her the most. When she left the queen of Sheba, she was speechless at what she had heard and what she had seen of his kingdom's splendor. There was no life left in her. It's hard for us to appreciate how wise Solomon was, the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus himself. No one could win an argument with Solomon. He could see right through their intellectual sophistry, but what that those who tried intellectual sophistry could not accomplish with Solomon, are you listening, wicked women did. They turned away his heart. We read in Nehemiah chapter 13 verse 26, these strange wives, these heathen princesses princesses, no doubt he entered into political alliances with them. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Outlandish doesn't refer to their appearance or dress style. It means foreign, strange. Where do we see Solomon at the last? please don't miss this, what Solomon would have never done for himself in worshiping idols, he did for his heathen wives. Burning incense, sacrificing. And so his God-given wisdom, as wonderful as it was, as amazing as it was, as sought out as it was, was neutralized by the wiles of wicked women. And we see at the last God gets angry with the very one that was so singularly beloved of Him. God divides the kingdom from Solomon, even before he died, and raises up adversaries. A true believer, yes. Triumphant at death, far from it. The wonderful, amazing Solomon died like a fool. There's one other person I want to mention, not as well known. I think of King Asa. King Asa was one of the godliest kings of Judah. The Bible says he was, I'm just piecing things together for the sake of time, he he was helped marvelously by his God. God actually helped Asa, vastly outnumbered, defeat a million-man army. We've had million-man marches million women marches on Washington, D.C., that makes the headlines. This really would have made the headlines. God helped him to defeat a million-man army. King Asa went further than his predecessors in enacting godly reforms. You don't read hardly any of the other godly kings did away with the high places, those prominent shrines and groves of trees on elevated ground used to worship false gods. But Asa did, at least for a time. He took away the high places. He removed his queen mother when she embraced idolatry. You know he was taking a chance when he did that. He led all Israel into a solemn covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And for a time, the people of Judah flocked to Him, not out of fear, but out of love. Because when they saw the Lord, His God, they saw that He was with Him. Well, after reading all those great things and the accolades that God wrote about King Asa, you would think, well, When it came time for him to to go, he just climbed the golden staircase to heaven. Not quite. The Bible says that the last Asa was diseased in his feet. He was in great pain. But instead of seeking to the Lord who had helped him so marvelously throughout the 41 years of his reign, he sought to the physicians. He did foolishly at the end. even persecuted some of the true prophets of God. 2 Corinthians 16, 7 through 12 tells the sad story. King Asa did not end well. After trusting the one true God for decades, he placed his reliance on fleshly might. And he died in horrible pain, a miserable, hateful, bitter old man. I'm telling you, folks, few finish well. But you and I don't have to be the statistics. So how can we be different? How can we defy those stats? Let's learn something from the words and the examples of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter so that we too, like they, will finish strong. So I'm being positive now and I'll move along. I've got to cover some ground this morning. First of all, if you want to finish strong... And I know I do. Be assured of your salvation. Would you look at those verses in Second Peter once again? Second Peter chapter one. Verses 10 and 11. Second Peter 1:10. Wherefore the rather, this is to be given priority. The rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall, even at the last. And an entrance will be ministered unto you abundantly," he goes on to say in the next verse. I'm here to tell you this morning, and many of you realize this, but I hope it'll bless your heart to think about it again. We can know, assuredly, that we are saved from the awful place called hell. Furthermore, we can know that we will gain rich heavenly rewards. We can know that we will have an abundant entrance into heaven. Some people think they're being humble when they just sing that little song that, you know, I hate. And you all made it a standing joke and I, I laugh with you. But I'm serious. as to the reason I hate it. I, I hate that song, Lord, build me just a cabin in the corner of Glory Land. That's pretty minimal, isn't it? Just barely making it to heaven. Oh, that's all I asked for. I'm, I'm so humble. I'm so low. Give me a break. We need to set our sights on a mansion on Hallelujah Boulevard. Because that glorifies the Lord the most. And how can we do that? Very quickly. Believe God's promises. There are many verses in the Bible that teach eternal security. <clears throat> it's how they're used that has brought that into disfavor with some people. We can know we are saved. We can say with the Apostle Paul who evinced a great degree of confidence, it was not dogmatic presumption, when he said to Timothy in this same epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, the day of judgment. You can have a heaven to go to heaven in. You don't have to run scared the whole way. You can know you are saved. The apostle Paul it was triumphant. He wasn't fleshly dogmatic in his what he said to Timothy in those familiar verses, chapter four, verses six through eight. In verse six, he looked downward into the grave, and he had absolutely no terror whatsoever. Paul believed that he would be beheaded soon. His blood would be poured out as a libation, a drink offering. He knew that as a Roman citizen he would not be crucified. He expected to be beheaded. He viewed his approaching death as a departure, a loosing, a release. He not only looked downward into the grave with no fear, he looked backward in verse 7 upon a life well spent and he had no regrets. So he wrote his own triumphant epitaph. Then he looked upward into heaven. Verse 8, saw the awards and the crowns there. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. He looked upward to heaven, and he had no reservations about that day. Please, don't listen to those who demonize this doctrine of eternal security and paint it in horrible colors as if those who believe it are seeking for a license to sin. No, just take God at His word. Secondly, obey His commands. Good works have nothing to do with our salvation. Hallelujah, we are saved by grace through faith as Paul said to the Ephesians chapter 2. But good works, are you listening? Good works have a whole lot to do with our assurance. As Peter said here in verse 10 of his second epistle, chapter 1, For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. You'll never stumble into doubt or despair or fear. And I'm talking, I know, not because I've read your email, not because you've come to me about it, necessarily. But I'm talking to many people this morning who have had serious doubts about your salvation. And it's easy to just say, just take God at His Word. Just, you know, just believe the Lord. Yeah, that's easier said than done. There are a lot of other things that contribute to our assurance in the Word of God. Our obedience does. The moral qualities that Peter emphasized in those foregoing verses in 2 Peter chapter 1. Add to your faith. Yes, there's things that need to be added. Virtue, that's moral excellence. And knowledge and temperance, that's self-control. And patience, which is perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity. And then, then he says, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. You never fall from your steadfastness. Could I just be even more blunt and simple? You are not likely to finish strong if you do not have the assurance of your final salvation. You won't be much of a threat to the devil if you don't have assurance of your salvation. And if you are living in willful, deliberate sin right now, I can tell you almost without any doubt, you will have serious doubts about your salvation unless the devil has deceived you with a false hope of heaven. Because Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse 12, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. What's the flip side of that? If you're not following Jesus, you're going to walk in darkness. Number two, how can we finish strong? Don't give up the fight. Don't give up the fight. I preached a whole series of messages from 2 Timothy and I called it Paul's swan song. And we can hear from Paul's swan song here that to him, the Christian life was a battle. It was a race. It was a sacred trust. And Satan wants to wear us down. The book of Daniel, we read that expression, Satan will seek to wear out the saints of the most high. And he'll try to get weary of the fight. I hear people saying that all the time, Pastor, I love Jesus, I love church, and I love the people of God, I'm just tired of the fight, join the party. But you're not going to be able to lay your armor down until God takes you home. Don't give up the fight. That's why we have the Christian armor given to us in Ephesians chapter 6, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, you don't think you can reach down and pull up anymore and get it out, but having done all, stand. You're going to need that in 2024. We need to persevere in this fight, clad in every piece of that prescribed, sacredly given spiritual armor, and clinging to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think about When I think of the sword of the Spirit, I think about one of David's mighty men. I forget which one it was. He had, you know, the top three and then a circle of 30 around him after that. And one of the men was described as it this way, that he gripped his sword so hard for so long and killed so many people that they had to pry his hand loose from the sword. Don't give up the fight. It's a good fight. Paul said to Timothy, First Timothy six, verse twelve: "Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called." The, the word "good" there—it's it, a different word that's often translated "good." This particular word means intrinsically good. It is good by its very nature. It's a good fight. Why? Because our Savior has already purchased the victory in this fight through His death and resurrection. Satan, I need to tell you again, though I, you've heard it many times from these lips, Satan is a defeated foe. Yes, he's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He's making a big mess and causing a big ruckus, but he knows that his time is short. The victory has already been pronounced on him, his head was crushed at the cross. Don't let the devil bluff you otherwise. It's a good fight because the outcome is secure. It's a fight of faith. And faith is the victory that overcometh the world. And we can be like Abraham who was strong in faith, against faith, believed in faith, giving glory to God. Fight the good fight of faith. Know your enemy. We've all heard what the Christian's three enemies are. But the way some Christians live, you would think that the three big enemies of of the child of God was the ACLU, the liberals, and ISIS. I don't read that in the Bible. The big three enemies of the child of God are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in that passage which gives us The Christian armor, it it introduces it in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not people. I don't care how wicked they are. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness literally in the heavenlies. We may not see them, but they're there. And Paul said, I have fought a good fight. He's talking about against those principalities and powers. The word for fought in the Greek is the word from which we get our word agonize. It's a favorite verb of the Apostle Paul. To the point of exhaustion, he's laboring, he's straining, every sinew is bulging. I know many of you will identify with this because of the time of year we're at, we're about to enter the really big peak of basketball season with the NCAA. And in our area, it's especially true. The Tar Heels and the Blue Devils are going to go at it. They always do it twice, at least. And if they can meet in the tournament, even more than that. Whoever loses the first fight is out for revenge. Nothing else matters. It's a grudge match. But I'm here to tell you this morning, no Tar Heel, Blue Devil, grudge match ever had more cause for all-out expenditure of strength than when we are fighting against the world and the flesh and the devil. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26, So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. He wasn't just shadow boxing. He didn't miss his aim. He wasn't wasting his strength. And neither are you, dear fellow soldier. Don't grow weary in well-doing. The writer to the Hebrews said, You have not yet resisted unto blood in your striving against sin. Has anybody here been beaten or shot Cut, with, cut up with a knife, stabbed for your st- love for Christ? Anybody? I'd love to see, honestly. Some have. Many have. Keep wrestling with those indwelling lusts. Keep up that enmity with the world. Don't peacefully coexist with doubts and unbelief. Fight! Wrestle! Pray! Pray! Get intense. This Christian life is not for wimps in 2024. A century ago, the most colorful evangelist in America was a man you've heard of, most of you, evangelist Billy Sunday. Oh, how he fought the liquor crowd, how he fought the devil. He fought sin. He'd get so mad at the devil, he'd throw hymn books and chairs at him from the platform. And he said this once, I'm going to beat the devil with my fists, I'm going to kick him with my feet, I'm going to bite him with my teeth, and when I'm old and weak and toothless, I'll gum him till I die. And we smile, but you know, that's what it takes. There's a real warfare going on with the powers of darkness in the heavenlies. The devil never lets up. That's one thing good you can say about him. And we better not let up either. Got to fight the devil, got to fight the good fight of faith. We need to know who our enemy is, we need to guard the truth. Isn't it interesting, Paul said there in verse 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have kept the faith. We hear a lot about faith these days. People of faith, you know, sincerely held faith, blah, blah, blah. This is not that kind of faith. This is God's revealed truth, the faith the heart of which is the gospel. And Paul said to Timothy in chapter 1 verse 14 of his second epistle, that good thing which was committed unto the keep by the Holy Ghost. Now Paul had kept the doctrines of the gospel in their purity. He had suffered for the gospel. He had not compromised the gospel. He had not betrayed any of the gospel. And he appeals to Timothy, his young protege that he was concerned about, recognize the treasure that you have, O Timothy. Guard it, for everything you are and have. Guard it. Chapter 6, verse 20 of his first epistle, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Fight against compromise. Fight against heresy. And in these last days, beloved, of apostasy and subtle, diabolical infiltration of error, we can't afford to let down our guard. When you get up, when you clothe in the morning, strap on that shield of faith. Put on those gospel shoes. Make sure you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Don't leave home without it. 2024 promises to be one of increasing attacks against Christ and Christians and truth. And if it was said 2,000 years ago by the inspired writer Jude, we must earnestly contend for the the faith, there it is again, the faith, the body of truth, once and for all delivered to the saints. Do you think it's any more needful today? Don't give up the fight. Don't cave to the culture. It's a good fight. The outcome is assured. Preacher, how can I finish strong as I'm... Thinking about that on this last day of the year. Number three, stay focused on Jesus. Stay focused on Jesus. As Paul testified to Timothy that his own loosing departure, he said, was at hand, he knew he was about to be beheaded. He could honestly say that he was among those who loved Christ's appearing. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, again, I, because for the sake of time, not having you turn to a lot of these passages. I hope you'll jot the references down and look at them later. That's not what I say that's important and what God says. But in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul said in light of that, I have finished my course did you know there's a course laid out for every one of us there's a race that is set before us each of us and I've got news for you it's not a sprint I was never a sprinter somebody be 10 yards down the road before I get out of the starting box but the Lord knew I was going to be a preacher and I needed a good set of lungs and I could run a distance race this is an endurance race And here at this late hour with the shadow of the guillotine hanging over the Apostle Paul, he still had a finishing kick And he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I count not my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had received a sacred trust from Jesus, the the treasure of the gospel, and he could not fail his master. He kept his eyes on the goal, on the finish line, on the laurel that Christ himself would give. That means we're going to have to avoid entanglements and weights. Chapter 2, verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Beloved, let's take with us only what we need for the battle. Please don't think I'm getting on a hobby horse today, but you know what is bothering most Christians in the United States of America? And I sure hope our Hispanic Folks, don't pick up on this from us because I see a difference with them. Our lives are so cluttered up. The good has become the enemy of the best. It was not for nothing, sorry for the double negative there, that Laverne Wall, when she was with us, said that those Zimbabwean national pastors who are closer to God than we are, many of them. They pray for us, though we are supporting them. And they say, Lord, help those distracted American Christians. And we are distracted. We need to maintain a wholehearted concentration. We need to lay aside the weights that so easily beset us. The Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, this one thing I do. He didn't say this 15 or 20 things I do. He said, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you folks, if we're going to finish strong in the Christian faith, some of us are going to have to let some things go. I once heard a man ask, what is the secret to your success? And this was his answer, planned neglect. Planned neglect. We're going to have to put on our spiritual blinders and refuse to be distracted. We've got means of doing many things in a day. We've got all kinds of devices to keep up with things. We've got cars that can get us there and some of us go faster than the speed limit to do it. And so we just try to pack so much more into a day and we're so distracted. I've got one more, folks. gonna park here for just a few minutes. If you want to finish strong and hear the well done of the master, you're going to have to exercise discipline and self-control. As Paul said to the Corinthians chapter 9 of his first epistle, verse 26, I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection. He's using boxing terminology. He's literally saying, I beat my body black and blue. And he urges others to do the same thing, essentially. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, he says to Timothy, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Sometimes our missionaries come back home like Lori and Oleg They've seen such hardness and suffering and endurance and sacrifice. And I'm sure they look at us and say, oh, how soft they are. They didn't tell me that. You know, it comes down to just good old-fashioned character. I mean, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And I've got a feeling that we're going to have to get tougher in 2024 in the right sense of the word. First of all, when we fall, we're going to have to get back up again. And we all fall. Proverbs 24, verse 16, for a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Think of old Peter in this regard. Peter, he started out rough, didn't he? But he finished strong. In fact, about everything you read, that Peter, just about everything Peter said in the Gospels that's recorded there was a mistake. He'd been better off if he hadn't said it. Finally, he stooped so low as to curse and swear and say that he never knew Jesus. But you know the rest of the story. When Jesus looked at him and the rooster crowed, Peter proved that he knew Jesus. He proved that he had the right stuff because he went out and wept bitterly. And then Jesus asked him later three times, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And he crumpled up and wilted and said, Lord, you know everything. I know what it looks like, but you know that I love you. Now, I'm here to tell you this morning a man or a woman can make a lot of blunders, but still end up with a sincere heart for God. Samson failed miserably. He gave in to his lusts, he ruined his testimony. But in his death, he slew more than in his life. Don't let your guard down. Paul said in Romans 13, verse 14 make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Satan is not omniscient like God. He, Satan doesn't know all things. That's why I for one reason, uh, one thing, we need to be careful what we say out loud. Satan is not omniscient, but he is an astute observer. For thousands of years, he's watched human character. He knows our weaknesses. And one of his favorite tools... Not just for men, but women too. You know what it is? Self-pity. If he can get you to wallow in self-pity, he will make you think, and I know whereof I speak, he'll make you think that because you had to suffer for a time, you deserve relief. And so often we seek relief through sin. We think we deserve a break. How did that work out for David on the rooftop when he thought he'd sit this one out? Thank God he repented and finished strong. Amen. And finally, pray to be kept from falling. I go back to that little epistle of Jude. We quoted verse 3, but in verse 24, even a more memorable verse, a triumphant and encouraging verse, Paul, or Jude commits his readers to God, and he says this, Now unto him who is able to keep you from keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You know, it's scriptural to pray that way. Lord, keep me from falling. Lord, help me to finish my course with joy. Lord, help me to bring forth fruit in my old age. Lord, help me not to rest on my laurels and think that I can just coast into heaven. I heard a preacher uh, say one time, there's no fool like an old fool. There's no fool like an old fool. And even if you're saved, and please understand what sense I'm saying, if you're saved, you're not safe. And if you examine the context of Jude's epistle, it's all about falling, it's all about apostasy. He talks about the angels, which kept not their first estate, they fell. The Israelites, though they've been delivered marvelously from Egypt by blood and by power, they fell in the wilderness. Sodom and Gomorrah fell, Balaam fell. The sons of Korah fell, but beloved, you and I don't have to fall. One of my favorite evangelists, probably the most quoted evangelist that's from the state of North Carolina, it's not Billy Graham, it's Vance Havner. He's been quoted more than any other preacher that I know of. He died back in 1986. Some of you may not know who he was. But on his 80th birthday, he had a celebration in his native Greensboro. That's where he was from. And an original poem was read by his dear friend, Dr. Robertson McQuilkin, who for many years was the president of Columbia Bible College, became Columbia International University, a great man of God. Dr. McQuilkin, on the 80th anniversary, 80th birthday of his dear friend Vance Havner, he was moved to write a poem based on the testimony message of Vance Havner. The title of it was Getting Home Before Dark. And this poem may not float your boat at all. (laughs) Poetry may not be your thing. But would you indulge me just a little? This poem moves my soul and I pray it may move one or two others, and then I'm done. Robertson McQuillan, writing in honor of Vance Havner. Home before dark. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of the years long spent. I fear not death. For that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forth into life, life with you unsoiled and free. But I do fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late, that I should end before I finish, or finish but not well, that I should stain your honor, shame your name, or grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of a spirit grown mean and small. Fruit shriveled on the vine. Bitter to the taste of my companions. Burden to be borne by those brave few who love me still. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet. A joy to all who taste. Spirit, sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of tattered gifts, rust locked, half spent, misspent. A life that once was used of God, now set aside. Grief for glory is gone fretting for a task God never gave, mourning in the hollow chambers of memory, gazing on the faded banners of victories long gone, cannot I run well unto the end? Lord, let me get home before dark. The outer me decays. I do not fret or ask reprieve. The ebbing strength just weans me from Mother Earth and grows me up for heaven. I do not cling to shadows cast by immortality. I do not patch the scaffold lent to build the real eternal me. I do not clutch about me my cocoon, vainly struggling to hold hostage a free spirit pressing to be born. But will I reach the gate in lingering pain, in body grotesque, distorted, Or will it be a mind wandering untethered among light fantasies or grim terrors of your grace, Father? I humbly ask, let me get home before dark. Do you echo that prayer? If we knew our nature, and if we knew the possibilities of the promises of God's Word, We'd all be saying that from our hearts. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we're so weak and fallible. But thank you that we are in the grip of a great and strong God. We're about to start a new year in just a few hours, 2024. We do not know what this year holds. We do not know what arsenal of weapons the devil will throw at us. We need to be strong to meet the foe, and should you call us home this coming year as you have some of our dearest members in recent days, would you give us an abundant entrance? May we hear your words well done. Lord, what I pray for myself, I pray for my dear flock. May we all get home before dark for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. The one who finished his course with joy and is now set down at the right hand of the Father. Amen.